We started last week, uh, we always do a summer series based on one book of the Bible. I think last week, last summer we did Galatians. I think we did Colossians the summer before. So we embarked on this amazing and perilous journey to open up the book of Romans. Romans, you need to buckle up because Paul doesn't hold anything back. Uh, and, and, and so uh, last week we started this. Romans is re- wide, widely regarded as Paul's greatest work. Um, Coleridge actually called this letter the most profound work in existence. That's Romans. And when I read and study, I see so many important doctrines, and, which is a fancy way to say teaching, sound teaching, Outlined, I see the personal and pastoral heart of Paul and how he really cared for people in the church. I also see the boldness and the courage to write and speak the truth, which is an important pastoral characteristic. Somebody say amen. amen. So I'm going to break the rest of this chapter up. Uh, chapter one, we started last week. I'm going to break the rest of it up into three sections. So buckle up. You guys all ready? Okay. And if I have any reservations, if I have any reservations about teaching and preaching Romans, it's in the hope that I can do justice, that I can do it justice. Amen? So be praying hard. Romans 1, verse 8 through 11. We went through Romans 1 through 7 last week. Romans 8 through 11. First, I thank God I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed, proclaimed in all the world. And first of all, this verse just inspires me and challenges me, and I hope it challenges you and inspires you as well because I believe in a church that makes a sound in worship. I've said this so many times, but I believe that the most unique sound on the face of the earth, bar none, how many of you love an elk bugle in the wild? Mm, I know it gets, you all, gets me all fired up. You know, I love hearing a, a rooster cackle after you have a great point and, the, and you flush the thing. But there is nothing on the sound, there's nothing on the face of the earth that sounds like God's people coming together to worship. It's a unique sound and I believe it. And, and when I read this, it says, I thank God. My God, that because your faith is proclaimed, you're hearing something. I believe a church should make a sound in worship, makes a difference in caring, makes a difference in community, makes a difference in giving, and makes a difference in partnering with what Jesus is building, and that's the church. And so, it's a question I ask myself, what sound are we making? And what sound are you making? And what sound is our community hearing? Are they hearing disunity, division? Are they hearing hate? Are they hearing, you know what I'm saying? What sound are we making out in the community? Because Paul's writing to a church and he's basically saying this, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. So Romans 1, 9, we're just kind of going down this, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. And and here's the one I want to camp on for a moment. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
I want to actually impart something that is in the spiritual grace gifting so that it will strengthen you. And I think that's really important because there's a tension we hold. We, we, we don't want the gifts to be the goal. We want relationship and obedience to Jesus to be the goal. However, gifts are part of the relational package. If you're in a relational relationship with me, you get what I bring to the table. Amen? If you're in a relationship with Pastor Joel, you get what he brings to the table. If you're in a relationship with my brother Pat, you get what he brings to the table because we just bring what we are and who we are. Well, the Holy Spirit brings giftings. Jesus gave it. It's interesting. Paul writes about imparting spiritual gift to bring a strengthening to the church so we don't want to shy away from them. We don't want to make them the bandwagon. We don't want to make them the goal. But, we, but it's, it's part of the package. We see in 2 Timothy 1.6 that Paul reminds a young leader named Timothy to stir up the gift which was given to you by the laying on of my hands. We believe in the laying on of hands here. That's why when we have prayer teams at the end of the service, we want actually, we, we, we just believe the doctrine of laying on hands that something is imparted that God uses that physical action that we do to bring a spiritual response, bring a spiritual impartation. We also see then in 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul writes, we're to pursue love, but he says, but desire earnestly to prophesy. So if the gifts are not important, Why is Paul writing about them a number of times? It's important. We're just unpacking this. Okay? Romans 1, 16-17 For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, it says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Another translation says the just will live by faith. So when we look at this, I know this might be a little bit different for a lot of you. This is what we would term more expository preaching. You're just kind of going line by line, and you're going through this. And, you know, it's kind of cool because in a way, you don't get to like skip portions of the Bible that aren't comfortable to you. How many of you like got some... Portions of the Bible that are a little uncomfortable. I'm like, ah, ah, I think I'll just flip over a little bit. So basically, we're going through this. And it says, uh, it says the just will live by faith. So here's the problem that Paul is addressing. Humanity has been affected, impacted, permeated by sin. It's the original virus, so to speak. Corrupted by sin. And Paul writes extensively in this chapter about the ramifications of sin. You know, it's kind of interesting because we've been watching on the East Coast all the wildfires in Canada. And it just it gave me this incredible illustration of, of because you know what it's doing is it's impacting the East Coast with smoke. And, you know, I'm seeing pictures of New York. I'm seeing pictures of Boston. I'm seeing pictures of, you know, all of this. And think about smoke. It infiltrates everything. You know, they were canceling outdoor events. They're canceling practices. 
Inside it's better if you have a filter system. And we've experienced this over here. It's like sometimes like August, September, I was like, oh my gosh, it feels like Armageddon. Right? But think, I want, I want you to think about this. Inside it's better if you have like HVAC filter system, but it actually just makes less smoke. There's still smoke. There's areas of heavy smoke, and there's areas of less smoke. But there's still smoke. It infiltrates things. And uh, it doesn't mean that there's no smoke. I saw the mayor of New York put on, pull out a mask and say, I know you don't like this, but it will help. And I'm like, okay, okay, cool. So think about this. See, we have our zones. We have our big smoke zones and we have our little smoke zones. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is a little smoke zone, but there's still smoke, so to speak. There are places where sin seems to be more prevalent, thicker, and others where righteousness is prevailing, but there's still sin. There's still smoke. And the Gospel is God's response to bring us saving resolution through Jesus to this, to this issue. Our partnership, our decision to believe, to follow, and to trust is called faith. Translation once again, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is huge. It, it's, it's what we would call the doctrine of justification. Justification is the action or determination or declaration of someone actually who can make that. It's a legal term. That someone has been made righteous in right standing with God. The term is used 14 times in Romans, 8 times in Galatians, and collectively throughout the rest of Scripture, it's only used 14 times. So Paul is going, this is a major deal right here. It's that legal term to declare someone as just or righteous, and then also to recognize them as such. See, there's a sticky point. See, sometimes we forgive somebody, but do we act like we forgive them? We, we release somebody, we say, I forgive you, but then do we, do, we, do we change, do we actually look at them as forgiven people? I mean, think in our society, somebody does something and you go, well, I forgive them. I forgive them. But come on, your whole attitude, your heart, you know, how you're carrying yourself, it doesn't look like you forgive them. It looks like you're saying something, but actually are you believing something? So when we look at the doctrine of justification, this is a legal term that said Jesus actually stepped in, was the advocate, was the propitiation. There's another fancy, uh, fancy word. Uh, basically it says, hey, listen, where you are declared righteous, not because you don't have any smoke. It's because God did what we could not do for ourselves. A just person is someone who meets God's standard because the Bible says, for all have sinned, y'all got some smoke on you, and fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisees considered themselves just because they had their own measuring stick. I have fulfilled the law. I don't drink, I don't chew, 
I don't go out with girls that do. I mean, I mean seriously, we, 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 we develop a measuring stick. In Luke 29, in Luke 10, 29, the young lawyer came to Jesus and wanted to be justified. He wanted to be declared to have met God's standard. And then Paul wrecks all the legalists here because the Gospel, which is the good news, is that Jesus did what we could not possibly do when we come into relationship with Him by faith. And that faith is not just a belief. It's an active thing that attaches you to salvation. It's a determination. It's a trust. And when we come into that relationship, and obedience is the inward and outward testimony of that faith. Remember last week, if you weren't here, it was a great message if I say so myself. I use the illustration of a coin. Faith is one side, obedience is the other. It's the same coin with two sides. You've got to have faith, but it's got to be, it's proven by your obedience. And sometimes that's a really hard word for us because we don't want to obey. Our carnal nature doesn't want to submit, doesn't want to obey. I, you know, it's crazy how this thing works. But I want to move into a heavier section of this last chapter of Romans. And there's this expository tension. And I can't, I can't like not do it even though it's not comfortable. This is not comfortable. I was thinking, you know, I was talking to Pastor Joel. I'm like, man, I'm, this, this is kind of hard. But man, and now we're doing it on Baptism Sunday. It was all joy. And I'm going to basically bring the Debbie Downer thing. Well, it's really not. It's the Word of God. See, I'm bound to Scripture. I'm bound to the Word of God. My filter is not my filter. My emotions, my experience, my filter's got to be I'm bound to Scripture. I'm bound to the Bible. I have to say, this is what God said. The, you know, the, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. That means I have to look at this and I go, it's, you know, it, the, the term is verbal plenary inspiration. It's like, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there can't be a section where I'm like, well, I don't really believe in that. I, I just have to do it. I have to unpack it. So Romans 8, 1, 18, for the wrath of God, the wrath of God, ah, wrath. And we make movies about wrath and they're usually not good. You know, wrath of the Titans. Wrath. You know, you kind of spit it out like a four-letter word. Wrath. But here it is in the Word of God. It says, in the wrath of God. Wait a minute, I thought God was good. I thought God was just. I thought God was like, you know, bunny rabbit stuff. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so first of all i want to unpack the wrath of god wait a minute wait a minute isn't god good god is good yes he's good but god is also just and the wrath of god is not like this emotional anger of a man for revenge but the measured response defined the measured response to something that's out of order so we have that in us, right? I mean, we have, come on, let's be honest. We have some of that in us. 
We see something that's out of order and we react because we realize, man, you see a child abused and something rises up in you and says, that's not right. I'm not going to tolerate that. Right? We have that in us because we've been created by God. You see something in you and you realize this is the right thing to do, the just thing to do, and God is just. The word wrath in the Greek is defined as a measured response to evil. And most people don't like to think about the wrath of God, and lots don't understand it very well. I'm not, I'm not saying that I understand it very well. You know, I'm trying to unpack this word, and I've been trying to unpack this word for probably 55 years of my life. And there's still things that I'm like, okay, Lord, how do we, how do we, what do you want here? What are you saying here? But Romans tells us of the good news and the love of God. But Romans also tells us about judgment. And that's not a topic our culture likes to talk about. Unless they've been impacted by someone else's sinful actions. You see what I'm saying? And then it's like, get them, God. Come on, how many times has somebody done something stupid? I'm, I'm driving with my wife and somebody passes me where there's a double yellow line and something like that. What's my first response? Man, I hope there's a cop up there. Because we have something in us that basically is just. And we want to react. Well, why wouldn't God react? Why would we expect that God would just let stuff happen? See, God is angry about sin. He sees the death. He sees the destruction. He sees the separation. He sees the evil that are birthed in the earth because of sin. There's a lot of smoke. There's some heavy smoke areas and there's some light smoke areas. But there's smoke. And you can't read the news, watch the news without the evidence of sin being clearly seen. And actually sin, it's interesting, is the root source of almost every headline. Every news story. If you look, what's the root source? It's sin. And God is angry about sin. And we are angry about some sin. We're angry about sin others do. We have a lot more grace for the sin that we walk in. Don't we? Have grace on me, God, but get them, God. I mean, we're just like, we're complex creatures. Unrighteousness always suppresses the truth. That there's a God, we've been created in His image, we're called to relationship and worship of Him. Now Paul continues to say in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. 
This is crazy. It just logically looking at this, Paul lines out that there are no excuses to not knowing God. You can't walk out into nature without recognizing that someone made this. I can take any created thing in this room and you will recognize somebody made this. Somebody created this. There was something purposeful. I can, take, I can take this towel right here and I can say, listen, we're all going to stay here. I'm going to drop cotton balls on the stage until it turns into a towel. You'd all be like, I'm out of here, pastor, because that does not make sense. Everything that we see has been created. That's what this passage is saying. That God says, I've revealed myself to you with the stuff that's around you. All creation cries out that there is a God. There's no one without excuse. Wow. Order and complexity never came and never come from chaos. It's like going into your teenage son's room and going, oh my gosh. Maybe by chance, maybe by evolution, this will resolve itself. (laughs) Right? It's not going to. I wasn't talking about my teenage boys. The second thing is that everyone is created and born with a conscience. I want you to think about this. You, you ever been around, you know, just even a, a young, like young baby that does something and says, uh-oh. There's something in us that there's this inherent conscience that kind of knows what's right and kind of knows what's wrong. And that because there's been a lot of smoke, it gets seared. Smoke covers a lot of stuff. I walked down into my basement the other day, and I'm like, Robbie, it smells like smoke down here. We have a, we have a, you know, we have a wood stove down there, but we haven't used it for months. It smells like, she comes down, yeah, it's because, it's because basically you, you haven't cleaned out the wood stove yet. And I'm like, what do you mean I haven't cleaned it out? And I open it up, sure enough, ashes are like that deep in it. And it, it changes your, your sense of smell. Sin will do that. Have you ever been angry with someone for doing something that they know better? They should know better than that. We, we have this instinctive, inheritive, intuitive thing that recognizes I have a conscience and it came from God. And not honoring God. Because the passage talks about not honoring God is actually rejection. I hadn't thought about this before. But not honoring God is actually rejecting God. And there's no neutral moral ground. There's no middle of the fence. You either honor Him or you don't. In fact, think about rejection. Rejection is probably the most terrible hurt that you can inflict on a person. I didn't really think about this or unpack this, but God was rejected in heaven when Lucifer deceived a third of the angels. That was a perfect place. 
Adam rejected God in the garden when he didn't honor Him. Jesus was rejected when He went to the cross. I mean, think about your life and think about your hurts. A lot of times we don't realize somebody won't spend time with me, I feel rejected. Maybe I'm an employer and somebody quits for a better job and I'm a little angry and I'm lost, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, there's a, there's a rejection there. But you think about rejection, that's a, that's a big hurt. God was rejected in heaven. God was rejected in the garden. Jesus was rejected and killed by those He came to save. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But, then here's what happened. But, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How many of you know people that think they got all their poop in a group and they really don't? Or how about follow the science? It's interesting over here, follow the science over here, don't follow the science. Wait a minute. Over here, I'm supposed to follow the science, but over here, there's some biological science that says there's a man and a woman, but I'm not supposed to follow that. I'm just, I just got to go there because here's the word. So Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images res- resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The big idea here is you become like what you worship. Worship worthless things and they own you. They shape you. They change your priorities. And then there's a downward spiral. Instead of worshiping God and becoming more like Him, you become futile in your thinking. That is the consequence. That's the end result. Nikki Gumbel Pastor Nicky Gumbel wrote this, As the worship of God declines, so the morality of a society declines following in its wake. And we've seen how true that is. Man will worship. We've been created to worship, but what we do is we swap out stuff. We make other things our priority instead of the main thing. And there's this great exchange. It goes back to uh, the mountain and Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's, 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 he's spending time with God and, and the people are down in the valley. And while he's gone, they decide that they're going to throw all their gold and all their earrings and all their stuff in the fire and basically created a golden calf, something that ate grass. And they worshipped it. Do you think God was rejected? I do. I mean, he comes down, Moses comes down and he sees this, and I, just, I, I don't know, man. When I get to heaven, I know Aaron's going to be in heaven, and I'm going to ask him. Because, you know, Aaron's response when, when Moses said, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, we just threw it in the fire, and out came a golden calf. I'm like, bro, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in miracles, but not that. And maybe it's not a golden calf today, but it can be other idols it can be sports, it could be money, it could be hobbies. What captures our attention more than God is usually an indication of an out-of-balanced heart. And so God gave in. God gave in. 
He actually gave mankind what He wanted. Scholars use the term, remember I used the term wrath, scholars use the term passive wrath. Passive wrath. You look at this, and the message paraphrase, or the passive wrath, the measured response to evil was God saying, you get what you want. I give up, you get what you want. The message paraphrase puts it like this. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let, let them run loose and all hell broke loose. In essence, God is releasing or giving people the consequence of what they want. The Bible says there's a, right, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And here's what it looks like. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and created the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, and for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their woman exchange natural relationships to those who are to those that are contrary to their nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error and since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the heavy part. That's the one that I don't like to preach or teach, but you have to. God gave them up was used three times. That's what's called passive wrath. It's not like, you know, the wrath of the titans. You know, the wrath of Khan. It's, ba it's not the, you know, the big whip coming out of heaven. It's basically saying, you've rejected me. You haven't honored me. You haven't recognized me. You made a determination to walk in your own stuff. And I'm going to withdraw and allow the consequences for these decisions that you're making. I'm going to allow you to, to basically walk in them. Three things that God gave them up to. Lust and impurity, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. There are places in the world that preachers cannot unpack this last segment without threat of imprisonment. Because it can be termed as hate speech. There's a couple thoughts. One, God cannot tolerate any sin. Big smoke, little smoke. He's about no smoke. And we don't have the capacity to do no smoke without Jesus. We do, however, have a rating system. It's really quiet in here today. <laughs> oh. 
See, I'm not going to celebrate a pride month because that's approval. Neither would I celebrate a gossip month. Yet we approve of gossip if we engage. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do an envy month, a foolish month. Let's celebrate foolish month. A faithless month. How about it? Let's do a disobedient to parents month. Thank you. (laughs) See, God has grace for the sinner, yet the Bible says He opposes the proud. And Pastor Joel and I had a really good conversation the other day. I, you know, and, and, and we believe that God, that, that God has grace for those who struggle in some of these areas. God has grace for them. But when pride comes in, the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You, you actually, there's an exchange. There's something that shifts and it's different. And here's the thing is Paul is writing to a blended church in a way. Remember last week we talked about how in AD 47, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome, and thus the leadership of the church in Rome would have been like almost overnight went from Jewish to Gentile. And then about 10 years later, they were let back in, but now the predominant probably leadership of the local churches were Gentile. And if you look at that from a contextual and situation, To the Jews, homosexuality was an absolute non-starter throughout Scripture. You cannot find it. But to the Greek culture, there was approval and even celebration of it. So Paul was actually addressing both, and that's why I think he was strong in his language. But here's the thing. I think that Paul continued down the list to make sure everyone knew they were on the list and needed salvation. We're all included. Put down your rating system. Have you been envious? Have you been boastful? Have you been prideful? Have you gossiped? Have you been busybody Ben? I've never had a church torn apart by an alternative lifestyle, but I've seen lots of devastation from gossip, envy, anger, division. in our bitterness or lack of forgiving is just lower in our no-smoke zone than what we measure in others. That's big smoke. That's little smoke. I'm okay with little smoke. God's okay with no smoke. That's why we need Jesus. So when I read this, I read this and it breaks my heart. Because we're called to love people. This doesn't, just because this is lined out in here, doesn't give us the, the authority or the option not to love people and not to reach people and not to be bridges to people. And see, the thing is, is my convictions can be my convictions because once again, I'm bound to the conviction of the Word of Scripture. But I'm also bound to Jesus said, love your neighbor. And so there's this tension 
You're not going to find me out on the street corner with a sign that says turn or burn. But you are, going to, you are going to find me in a place where I'm going to be in relationship with somebody that doesn't have the same convictions of me. And I'm not going to be in like a judgmental relationship. I'm going to be in a relationship that tries to bring them to a knowledge of like, hey, there's a better way. There's a better way. See, here's the good news. I guess I need a worship team up here. I need you guys. The first chapter lines out the wrath of God, but it also lines out the intervention of God through Jesus. It lines out consequence, but more importantly, it lines out the rescue. It lines out the off-ramp. It lines out the escape. It lines out, hey, there's grace While we were yet sinners, God loved us. I want to look once more at the hopeful verse in the passage. Romans 1, 16-17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's not legalism. It's not... I got the right smoke filters put in place. I'm living in my little, like, very little smoke zone. No. It's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And once again, it's not the righteous shall live by faith. It's the righteous will live because of faith which attaches them to the salvation that comes through Jesus. That's the good news. When you consider the devastation of sin that destroys relationships, man, there are people sitting in here this morning that your lives have been devastated. You've been hurt. You've been scarred. You've been separated. You've been rejected. I mean, come on. There's not one person in here that basically could say, sin has not touched my life. It touches everyone. And the consequences of sin are death. They're death to relationships. They're death to hope. They're death to a future. But yet, because of Jesus, we have this amazing off-ramp out of that darkened, carnal, smoke-filled, sin-filled life. And we can say, God, I just need you. That Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. And if we take hold of that invitation by faith, we become the righteousness of Jesus. We be, we're, we're, we're right standing then before God. Man, is that amazing? Where like sometimes I haven't felt like I've been right standing before God. But it's not about my feelings, it's about my faith. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if we're bound to the Word, we're bound to Scripture, You can have conviction and you can have compassion at the same time. And maybe we see people that are in a bigger smoke zone than I am. I recognize I'm not called to judge them. That's God's purview. But to pray for them and to love them. Romans 5, 8 and 9 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, which more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? Oh man, I'm so amazed. The world has a sin problem and we have a sin problem, but Jesus is the answer. It's God's solution. It's God's heart. That's what we're called. I just want to encourage you this morning. There might be things in this world that challenge you. But you have to recognize God knows best. It's His creation. It's His world. It's His solution to my problem, to your problem. His response to your fear is faith. His response to your hopelessness is hope. His response to your addiction is deliverance. His response to your captivity is freedom. I mean, if you look at everything that God brings to the table, it's like, why wouldn't you honor and thank this God? Why wouldn't you move in a way that just says, God, I just want to give my priorities reset. I don't want to worship worthless things. David in the Old Testament wrote this. He says, keep my eyes from worthless things. Because there's something about taking things into your spirit, into your heart, and I'm telling you what, you got a culture that is constantly trying to get you smoke-filled. Constantly pressing on you. Moving in you. Moving around you. Offending you. Causing you to be bitter. Causing you to, to give up. And I'm telling you what, there's a hope. It's Jesus. And our faith will attach us to Him. Can I get an amen this morning? I want you to I want you to just bow your heads and your hearts with me for a moment. You might be here this morning. You, you, you felt the grace of God. Maybe you felt the grace of God for the first time. You saw the baptisms. You saw the testimony. Maybe you felt the love of God through worship or through somebody that you just met. But you've never taken that step. That off-ramp from a dead... In Colossians, it said that we were dead in our sin. And maybe today is the day that you come to life. By receiving, accepting that invitation. There's a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man would hear me and open, I will come in. That's a picture of that salvation. Would you open the door of your heart today? If you have not opened the door of your heart to this Jesus, I'm here to tell you boldly, you need Him. That's the only smoke solution. It's the only sin solution. And if you've not done that, but today you're saying, Pastor, I want to do that today. I want to, I want to take that. I want to, it, it's not just an off-ramp out of death and destruction, but it's an on-ramp into, into eternal life, into joy, into peace, into righteousness. And if you're here this morning, and you're saying, Pastor, I want to take that, I want to take that opportunity and declare that Jesus is Lord of my life. I want you to raise your hand right where you sit. I just want to agree with you. Come on, this is that easiest place you'll ever, ever do it. In a bunch of believers and community. If that's you and you're saying, Today I want to give my life to this Jesus. 